chapter 1, verse 1, James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. Several points to make on this epistle. First of all, James, along with Jude, was a brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a pillar of the church, and according to church tradition, and sometimes tradition can be substantiated through the word of God, and sometimes it cannot. But uh, on this occasion, we have no reason to doubt Tradition, when it tells us that he was martyred for his faith, he had a nickname called Camornes because he was always praying. And here James is writing to the twelve tribes. Now, I will say right from the outset that I am a semi-dispensationalist and my full dispensational brethren take the position for the most part that James, First and Second Peter, Hebrews and... 1st, 2nd and 3rd John are epistles aimed directly at the Jews for the first century and also during the tribulation. Now I understand that all of these epistles have an eschatological connotation to them so I don't completely dismiss that hypothesis but as a semi-dispensationalist when I approach the uh, epistle of James I apply this doctrinally to the church, the body of Christ. We were told in Galatians chapter 3 that once a person is born again there is neither Jew nor Gentile. We are just one person in Christ. Also this is the earliest epistle in the New Testament canon. 44 AD is a conservative date for this epistle and I guess after James it would be 1st Corinthians and then first Thessalonians so we are looking at the first written epistle in the New Testament and James as a saved Jew is writing to predominantly Jewish believers and we find that in the second chapter when it speaks about the assembly and the word behind that in the original Greek quote-unquote is a synagogue so James is as I say a saved Jew writing to his Jewish audience so we will say that right from the outset. I won't completely discard some of the valid points that our full dispensational brethren make when it comes to excogiting uh, the Epistle of James. This expression, the 12 tribes, normally would be referred to the Jews. Old Testament clearly would have the Jewish people in mind. They were the 12 tribes. They were Jacob's sons. But going through Galatians, which I did before Christmas, we found clearly that once a person is born again, he stroke she is adopted into the people of Israel. Romans chapter 11 told us that the root was Jewish and the root is holy and God has not finished with the root and we Gentiles are grafted into the root and we become part of the branch and when the church are being raptured the Lord returns to Israel and revelation primarily is aimed at Israel so we are adopted into Israel as I say and therefore in this epistle James is speaking to the church I personally cannot conceive really if I'm completely honest with you how somebody could read James and apply that to unsaved Jews 
I don't think it quite fits. But uh, as I say, I'm a semi-dispensationalist, so I don't throw out everything that our full-blown dispensationalists hold to. And uh, maybe by the end of this video, you may be persuaded to also become a semi-dispensationalist. He calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Great humility throughout the entire New Testament. None of the apostles were puffed up. None of them called themselves reverent or professor. None of them offered themselves as this big wheel. They were all humble servants. And like I said in other videos, every epistle in the New Testament, excluding First and Second Timothy, Philemon and Titus, every epistle, excluding those ones, were written to the church via the elders. And it's important for me to say that because one of the big problems that wasn't really dealt with at the Reformation was the one-man ministry. And the late Jack Hunter, a mighty preacher from Scotland, quite wisely said some years ago before his death that the two biggest evils to creep into the body of Christ, to creep into professing Christianity, was infant sprinkling and the one-man ministry. Infant sprinkling shouldn't really need to be explained, but for those who don't really understand why there's a problem with that, A, it gives you a false sense of security, and B, it puts the emphasis on water to save you rather than the blood of Christ. And I've met a lot of people since I've been saved that were baptised as infants, whether they were baptised into the Church of Rome, or the Church of England, or the Presbyterian Church, or other churches, is irrelevant. It doesn't save you. Hitler was a baptised Catholic and he certainly wasn't saved. Himmler and Hess were baptised Catholics and again, I doubt very much that they were saved. Franco was a baptised Catholic. Mussolini was a baptised Catholic. You see where I'm going with this. We were told from Galatians chapter 3 that we were saved by our faith in Christ alone. We started out in the spirit by our faith and Paul says, are you going to become better by going back to the flesh, by keeping feast days, so on and so forth. Water baptism, as I say, cannot save you. The thief on the cross believed on Christ and was saved. And it's my belief, as a quick uh, footnote, that the thief on the cross must have seen Christ during his three and a half year ministry, must have believed on him to some extent, but uh, his past caught up with him and he was put to death for his sins. Now I want to say that because the whole problem with water baptism, and it's called baptismal regeneration, is it degrades the work of Christ on the cross and puts all of the emphasis onto the recipient. The recipient has to do something in order to be saved, and that's not how it works. The Philippian jailer believed on the Lord, according to Acts 16, and then was saved along with his household. His household also believed. And then they were baptized. So you are baptized because you were saved. You don't get baptized in order to be saved. And again, one final point uh, on the one-man ministry. If you're not careful, you put one man in charge of a congregation. And if that one man goes into error, the entire church goes into error it's best to have at least two or three elders who can rotate responsibility of the church government. 
and they can take it in turns to visit people uh, outside of church hours as it were and there's always other people in the church that can also be called upon to do these duties as I say the main problem for me at the Reformation was that the reformers although they correctly dealt with justification by faith alone sola fide and that the scripture was their final authority sola scriptura they didn't go far enough for my liking they should have gone right back to the first century but they were raised in the Catholic system and parts of Catholicism sadly were retained uh, with these men post those characters you have Spurgeon you have Wesley and yes Spurgeon of course was a one-man minister but he hated the term reverence which is interesting uh, Wesley was raised an Anglican and uh, once he got saved he was pretty much kicked out of the state church his mother Susanna I believe remained in the C of E all of her days but John was a traveling evangelist and uh, lived off people's money really people supported him he was a full-time evangelist and that's really the exception the only exception for money in the New Testament to a saved party is that of an evangelist if you come across somebody who is a full-time evangelist somebody who goes out into the community by faith and preaches to unsaved people and builds up churches from scratch and then stays with that small congregation and then ordains elders then I believe that's what Paul is referring to in 1st Corinthians 9 Paul was a traveling apostle he was a full-time evangelist and he was allowed had he wanted to to have been supported by the church so an evangelist who sent out by his assembly to preach to unsaved people I believe would qualify for financial support but a one-man minister somebody who is in their pulpit maybe a couple of hours on a Sunday an hour midweek perhaps and the rest of the week is doing his own thing doesn't qualify and in reality that's a poor man's version of Roman Catholicism so just a few opening points that I wanted to lay down because James is a very very interesting epistle and it's also a difficult epistle to exegete because when you read the New Testament every book in the New Testament has to line up and James does line up with all of the other epistles Martin Luther had a problem with James and the Roman Catholics love to quote James because they believe incorrectly that it affirms faith and works in order to be saved and it does not and I'll get to that in the second chapter verse 2 my brethren count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations knowing this that the trying of your faith worketh patience save people if you're not born again you're lost so my dispensational brethren who believe that this has direct application to the Jewish people per se have to look at verse 2 and in verse 3 speaks about their faith work in patience if you're not saved you're lost as I've already said and the book of Revelation spoke about the unbelieving Jews as a synagogue of Satan and yet in spite of that Romans chapter 11 says they are still loved for the father's sake so never ever fall into the trap of becoming anti-semitic never 
get into replacement theology. The Jews are loved for the Father's sake. They are loved because of the patriarchs. And if you are a Bible believer, if you are born again, and I know for a fact if you're premillennial, you will love the Jews. So don't ever allow your reformed friends to somehow sway you over to their camp. Just allow the Jews to remain as they are. They're not saved, tragically. And if you come across an unsaved Jew, witness to that unsaved Jew. They need Christ, just as you need Christ. But don't become hateful to them. Two, you are told to be joyful when you fell into diverse temptations, trials. You are to be happy. You are to be content. Why? Well, because the Lord is behind it. And most of the trials, most of the tribulations that we go through do strengthen us. And not only do they strengthen us, they allow us to comfort others who are going through similar situations to what we are going through. Four, but let patience have her perfect work, that she might be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. You need to believe that the Lord is who he says that he is. And the book of Hebrews in the 11th chapter said, he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. You have to seek him with all of your heart. And the reality is that most people come to God on a superficial level. They get into a crisis. They cry out to God. They get a, an emotional relief. And they think, good, the Lord's heard me. I can now move on and continue on in my life and that's not how it works Christ says you are my disciples if you continue on in my word so you continue on in his word to prove that you are a, a disciple he will give to you liberally if you ask according to his will and uh, look at six but let him ask in faith nothing wavering for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Faith is critical to answered prayer. And as I say, when you pray to the Lord for something, if it's his will, and if it is prayed for in sincerity, you will get it. But also keep in mind that you have to keep the commandments which are found in 1st John chapter 3 so there's a few points to get clear there's a, a process which has to occur before your prayer gets answered 8 a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways completely true if you are unsure of something in your life then it will have an effect on another part of your life if you fail to understand justification by faith then you will always doubt your salvation when a judge exonerates an assailant the assailant leaves the court if the assailant returns to the court day after day after day clearly the assailant has failed to grasp that the judge has already exonerated the assailant and that's why so many people struggle with assurance and that's why a lot of people fall and they crash because they are putting the emphasis on themselves to live a life which they can't live don't do it in the flesh live your life through the spirit yield to the Lord and he will grant you the ability to live for him 
Nine, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as a flower of the grass he shall pass away. Most of the early church believers were poor people for the most part, and it's true to say that the apostles for the most part were lower middle class, and Paul speaks about some of the servants in the epistles who work for Caesar's household and just generally working class people and there is a theme throughout the New Testament that the love of money is the root of all evil money in and of itself isn't a problem but when you love money when you worship money when it governs your life then it becomes a problem and here the rich are spoken of in a quiet powerful way really that uh, the grass shall pass away and it will do uh, but the poor brother from verse 9 is to rejoice when he is exalted and uh, that reminds me of uh, an old saying some years ago when a, a very well known rich person died and somebody said how much did he leave and the response was he left it all 11. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth, so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Again, these are people that love their money, these are people that don't know the Lord, haven't given him any glory, and this character may be the part he found in Luke 16, the rich man in hell. 12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Job was tested time after time, and Job is a type of Jew in the tribulation, and the Lord comes through for Job, stroke Israel, at the end, and all of Job's companions completely failed him. But uh, you were told to be blessed, you were told to be happy. And that's not easy. It's not easy when you're being chastised day after day. It's not easy when you're being pruned regularly to produce more fruit. It's painful. But also remember that Hebrews says, if you're not pruned, if you're not chastised, you are illegitimate. So if you are going through regular trials and you're coming through them, and you will come through them, you may not always be victorious, you may fail in the short term but the long term you will become more confident you become more stable more mature but say hang in there you know it's a short-term thing and it proves that you are saved I remember watching a debate some years ago of a Catholic debating a Protestant and it was a very interesting debate to watch and the Catholic as you would appreciate didn't believe didn't understand justification by faith stroke eternal security and uh, he made a claim as to how it could be that some other local pastor had been found guilty of child molestation. And coming from a Catholic, that's quite rich. But uh, what I would have said had I been there is, well, maybe the pastor of that church isn't even saved. In fact, if you know somebody who's living a pretty content life and is living like the devil regularly, Chances are that person isn't even saved to begin with. So don't 
make the false assumption that just because somebody says they are saved, they are saved. They're not. Most people that say they are saved are not saved. And this is the truth. Most people that have assurance of salvation shouldn't have assurance of salvation. And those that should have it don't have it. And you go back to the 8th chapter of Romans and Paul says that the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. But sometimes when you get into the whole sinner's prayer movement, the one, two, three, pray with me deal, then again that is a a problem because people are trusting in the words to save them. Much like they are trusting in their baptism to save them. And that's not what saves you. You are saved when you called on the Lord. Like a beggar, a beggar is completely helpless and he cries out to a passerby to assist him, to give him something. And when the passerby gives the beggar something, then the beggar has been temporarily anyway redeemed. But don't put the emphasis on baptism, as I've said already, and uh, anything that you can do. Just trust in the Lord. He saves you, you don't save yourself, and you're not a junior partner in the atonement, as I've also said in previous videos. All of the glory goes to him. The word of God says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. So if you are lost, if you see yourself as a sinful person, he came for you. But if you're self-righteous, and you think you can do it yourself, or you think that Jesus, Jesus was a good man, you think that the Lord was somebody who can be mimicked, then you will go to hell. You know, he's not like Gandhi, he's not like Muhammad, he's not like Confucius or Buddha. He says, I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. Unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. That's a pretty broad statement to make. You call me Lord and Master, and so I am. And of course, you know the words I am are the eternal words for God himself. 13. Let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Ephesians chapter 4 says that a man gives himself up to sin. And Romans chapter 1 says that once that occurs, then the Lord gives man over to a debased mind. And you can read all of Romans chapter 1 to find out all of the sins found in those verses. So you are responsible for your falls when you crash, when you backslide. And every saved person does backslide. But you don't make it a practice. Spurgeon, I think it was, said that you can't stop the birds flying over your head, but you can stop the birds nesting in your hair. And that's true. You can't stop how people live, how people function. And we are governed by temptation, by explicit images, pretty much all over the world, in any country that we live in, on a daily basis. And I had a conversation with a chap on the street just a couple of weeks ago and he took a tract from me and we spoke for maybe 10-15 minutes at the most and he was 
interested, of course, in the gospel, and he was interested in what I was telling him, but uh, when he stopped effing and blinding and using unclean language, he said to me, we can't change, we can't change the way that the world is, we're always going to have this problem. Yes, that's true, we will always have that problem. We weren't told to change the system of the world, we were told to get born again, and then once we are born again, we are reformed from within. And when enough people get reformed from within, then they change their communities, because they are all saved. So the pubs and the clubs close, and uh, people stop drinking, people stop taking drugs, people stop sleeping around, and people that are in long-term relationships get married. They get saved. They make a commitment to their so-called partner. But uh, what the Lord will do is, if you are backslidden, he will buffet you with sometimes the world system and sometimes even with unclean spirits uh, if you are completely out of the will of God because he loves you he has redeemed you he died for you and you are his property and he won't just let you go your own way he won't just write you off he will come for you and uh, there is a sin unto death which is found in the first epistle of John and sometimes people will die they'll die through their sin like the Corinthians died through their sin found in the 11th chapter and they go straight to glory they're still saved but they lose all their rewards all their crowns and uh, that's a big deal sometimes we are criticized those of us that hold to eternal security that uh, we present a cheap form of grace well grace is free it's not cheap it was purchased by the blood of Christ but uh, we don't use emotional blackmail we don't put people back under the law to try and live a life which they can't live. Nobody in the Old Testament was able to keep the law. Acts 15, the apostles couldn't keep the law. Christ kept the law. He came to fulfill the law. And uh, we were told that we got saved by our faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And we are kept by the Lord. We don't keep ourselves. 15. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Two applications here. The first application will be taken to apply to a saved person. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. An unsaved person who lives after the flesh will die and go to hell. A saved person who falls into sin and never repents, dies, goes to heaven, but loses their rewards, and sometimes can then go on to forfeit their millennial inheritance. And that'll be a huge deal, I assure you. So 15, as I say, has a dual application. You can aim it at an unsaved person, which goes without saying, really, that uh, you know men love their darkness rather than light, and therefore they will cling to that sin and eventually it will destroy them but uh, here if we aim it at a saved person and make the case I believe that if a saved person lives after the flesh they will die but their salvation has already been atoned for when they put their faith in Jesus Christ 16 do not err my beloved brethren now I do appreciate that Paul in Romans said he wished he was accursed for his brethren that they may be saved and of course for the most part the Jews were not saved so 
sometimes you can look at James and say, well, maybe it does have a direct application to the children of Israel. But uh, I don't believe so. My beloved brethren, the brethren are found in Matthew 13 as those that believed on Christ. And in Matthew 25, the brethren are rewarded for how they treated the Lord's people. Now you can apply that some ways to Israel because Israel is still the chosen race although at the moment the kingdom or the title deeds have been taken from the Jews and given to the church so temporarily we are the people of God we are the chosen race but ultimately as I say once the rapture occurs the Lord goes back to Israel and he finishes his business with them as it were and they are given the final chance to be saved and a third of them will be saved 17 every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the father of lights with whom is no variableness neither shadow of turning this could be a reference to Hanukkah the festival of lights and we just come out of Christmas um, but uh, also just a quick uh, footnote on 16 beloved brethren Again, I just want to drive this point home that the beloved brethren, I believe, is a reference to saved people, not the unbelieving Jews who Paul is scathing about in First Thessalonians, that they stopped the apostles, or they tried to hinder the apostles preaching to the Jews in general, really, to stop them from coming to the gospel itself. But every good gift comes from God. John the Baptist said that uh, a man could have nothing unless God gave it to him. Matthew's Gospel says that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Every good thing that you have comes from God. Even before you were saved, if you look back on your life, you can see many times when the Lord has blessed you. There are many occasions in my life when I think I took a lot of chances and a lot of risks when I was a much younger person, when I was in my teens, and the Lord saved me and I used to have an interest in cars high performance cars and the way that I drove as a kid could have killed me but uh, his grace clearly saved me he preserved me and he does preserve even unsaved people because he's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance God wants everybody to be saved and he's made a provision to save everybody Okay, that's universal atonement. But only those that believe on him are going to be saved. That's limited atonement. So the responsibility is on the hearer. The Lord has provided for them, he has provided for everybody, but only those that believe will be saved. If you go back to John three sixteen, the scripture says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should be saved and have everlasting life so he provides his son for the world there's your provision he's provided an atonement for the world but whosoever believeth on him would be saved that's the appropriation so you appropriate the atonement okay so the Lord provides it but it's down to you to receive it. 
That's how the atonement works. 18. Of his own will begat he us the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Again, that expression, brethren, I believe, has an application to save people. And uh, here, he says, every man should be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. That's going to feed into, of course, the teaching qualification of a church leader. Uh, there are points laid down in scripture that you have to meet. And sometimes you'll come across people that read First Timothy 3 and say, that doesn't apply to me, therefore I'm going to put myself out of the running. It has to apply to you. You have to fit the scripture. The scripture has been laid down and the word of God expects you to be conformed to the scripture. 21. Lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. The word of God is powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. When it's presented to unsaved people, it does work. Now, it's true that most people that hear the gospel suppress it and they make their own arguments for why they don't want to believe it and they put all these smoke screens up and all these straw men arguments and we've all seen it but the reality is that the word of God has penetrated deep into that person's heart and I've spoken to enough people since I've been saved that I know have gone away convicted now they may not get saved if they are a typical stubborn rebellious person then I'll go to their graves unsaved but the word of God has penetrated their hearts and the scripture can save souls that's the power power of the word of God 22 but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving your own selves how true that is when the message is preached you are to act on it don't give it lip service put this book into action and uh, that expression is going to be further expounded in the second chapter 23 for if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass for he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was again if you have understood salvation and then you go back to a position pre your salvation then you've forgotten that you've already been redeemed and that's kind of the theme from hebrews that you were saved by your faith in the messiah and you started with him and you have to finish with him don't go back to the law found in John chapter 6 but to continue on with him because if you reject him if you go back to the law then clearly you are going to put yourself in a position of an unsaved person there's only one atonement there's only one sacrificial lamb and that of course is the Lord Jesus Christ 25 but whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work this man shall be blessed in his deed amen to that 26 if any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue but deceiveth his own heart this man's religion is vain now this is the whole area of the tongue and uh, again the second chapter deals that in a bit more detail 
but uh, the reality is that even say people can say things that they shouldn't say and uh, you know I've been saved 10 years and I put myself in that same category you know I can find myself praising God and uh, enjoying fellowship with him and witnessing to unsaved people and sometimes in a second or a minute my tongue is running ahead of me and I'm saying things which I shouldn't be saying not cursing not swearing but sometimes being unkind uh, or sometimes even gossiping in a slight roundabout way you know we are all prone to this and uh, it goes back to our fallen nature even in the millennium when Christ is physically on the earth for a thousand years there is still going to be sin it is inside all of us and that's why we were told to yield to the Lord to be holy to strive to walk a fine line with him to deny the flesh and lean to the spirit and you do that through the word of God and again sometimes if you are doing frontline work if you are constantly on the go you do fall into bad ways you if you spend a lot of your time with unsaved people they can rub off onto you I was talking to a brother quite recently a really solid brother in the Lord has a great presence you know online and he said that he came home from work and he was talking to his wife and a and a, a filthy word came out of his mouth and he realized it straight away and he said I'm sorry about that I didn't mean to say that he works with unsaved people and he must have heard it during the day and he's heard it a million times before as we all have but on that occasion he was obviously stressed I guess to some extent and he simply echoed what he had heard that day and you know we are all prone to this but uh, like I say we're not looking for sinless perfection we will all stumble we all continue to fall short but we don't make it a practice you know we don't make it a practice to live like the world when we are saved there is a change which takes place in us 27 pure religion and undefiled before God and the father is this to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world that word religion for me needs to be interpreted I don't like the word religion generally as a very negative connotation to it I think biblical religion is okay uh, I think faith sounds a bit more purer but uh, religion if it's biblical if it's found in scripture if it's substantiated in scripture sits fine with me and again if you are saved you will do works and you can see that the first chapter is going to feed nicely into the second chapter 22 told you to be a, a doer of the word not only a hearer and 27 wants you to be out and about doing good works for in this part of scripture the fatherless the widows and once you are saved you will do good works you will make the effort to go the extra mile but uh, always keep in mind that you were saved by your faith in Christ to, to then do good works Ephesians chapter 2 you were saved by your grace through faith unto good works so the works will follow your faith but don't trust in your works to save you and I'll also say this before I conclude the first chapter that trusting in works or even offering works as evidence of salvation is flawed most Jehovah's Witnesses do about 20 hours a week door knocking sometimes a little more but 20 hours a week 
I believe is a typical uh, output that a JW is expected to do if he strokes she wants to remain faithful with their local Kingdom Hall. Mormons will also do a lot of good works and Catholics. Catholics do a lot of good works. Catholics fast like probably nobody else does. Of all of the years I was in the Catholic Church and the 10 years that I've now been out of the Catholic Church, I can honestly say truthfully that the Catholics have the monopoly on praying and fasting. But uh, just go back to Matthew 6, the Pharisees fasted and uh, I'm sure Caiaphas prayed, Judas prayed before he hung himself but didn't save him, didn't help him. So don't lean on your work, say, well, I must be saved because I'm now doing this or I'm now doing that. Listen, you were saved when you believed on Christ. You were saved when you came to the end of yourself. That's what saved you when you put your faith in him. And you saw yourself as a filthy reprobate who deserved to go to hell. And you knew that you deserved to go to hell. You were the first person to say, I should go to hell. That's how you know that you are saved when you put your faith in Christ and he as the good shepherd will get you to glory okay that's going to be the conclusion to the first chapter and uh, I think most of you know that the way I do this type of thing is I just read through the verses and offer my thoughts as I go along and hopefully you are following me along uh, in your Bibles like I say, this isn't a scripted video, it's just me wanting to give you the scripture, give you the word of God as best as I can. And sometimes, uh, even when you quote great scriptures, well-known scriptures, sometimes you misquote them because your mind is thinking ahead about what you're going to say. And I think in John 3.16, I may have misquoted it, uh, my apologies, but it was quite simply... And you know it so well, but I'll just give it to you one more time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So it's not my purpose to ever misquote scripture, to ever take liberties with the scripture. But for me, the best way to do this type of concept is to do it in an impromptu way. I don't like lots of notes. I don't like having a script. It's not how I like to roll like to just sit back and do it in a more relaxed and informal manner chapter 2 verse 1 my brethren have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory with respect of persons don't show favoritism do unto others as you would have others do unto you God is no respecter of persons we were told to be a light to the lost we were told to be blessed when we were used and abused and we were told to do good to our enemies and where possible live peaceably with all people so with all that in mind it's kind of strange when you get talking to some of your Calvinist brethren and I know I've had my conversations with my Calvinist friends over the years and uh, they say to me something like this that God hates the most and loves the few and yet if that's the case why are we expected to love the world when the world according to our Calvinist friends is going to hell it's a very strange system now John 3 16 which I've already looked at does say that the Lord 
gave a son for the world, he loves the world, and yet back in the Psalms it said that he's angry with the wicked every day and he hates all workers of iniquity. So we have to somehow harmonize these scriptures and uh, that's called hermeneutics when you get into the biblical interpretation of the scriptures to approach it correctly and if you get 10 verses which clearly give you a specific teaching on a subject and one vague verse you go with the clear 10 verses so this is how I understand it Psalm 5 and Psalm 7 are speaking of the Lord's righteous anger his holiness and he cannot behold sin he cannot look upon evil so yes he hates all workers of iniquity he hates man in his pre-regenerate state he hates the lifestyle that man has chosen for himself and his anger his fury abides on that particular party but he also loves his creation it says back in Genesis 6 that he was grieved for the sins of man it is a paradox so the best way to approach it is to present the Lord to an unsaved party as a loving father who wants man to be saved he's not willing that any should perish the book of Ezekiel in the 18th chapter said that the Lord wasn't pleased he took no pleasure in the death of the wicked so we present the Lord in a very clear pure holy and a consistent light that he is pure that he is sinless and he cannot be around anything that's unclean anybody that's unclean and the same goes for an unsaved person an unsaved person would absolutely hate to be in the presence of a sinless savior and that's why unsaved people get their wish at the great white throne and they go into the lake of fire they go into eternal hell because they don't love Jesus they don't want to be with Jesus Muhammad didn't want to be with Jesus and uh, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and all those people didn't know the Lord they all denied the Lord in fact Smith said that he had achieved more than Christ so all these people will get their wish they get their comeuppance and they will go into the lake of fire at the second death two for if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing and say unto him sit thou here in a good place and say to the poor stand thou there or sit here under my footstool are ye not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts Verse 2 speaks about an assembly, and like I've said already, that the, the Greek word behind that is synagogue. So you can appreciate why our full dispensational friends take the position that James is written to the Jews first and foremost, first century, with a eschatological application in the tribulation. Now, I've already said from the beginning that I don't hold to that position. I think you can give this quite clearly doctrinally to the body of Christ first century and also in the 21st century but uh, here you are told not to show favoritism and uh, you have to remember that first century people 
first century in general when it comes to the church when it comes to the people of the Lord when it comes to that whole period of antiquity poverty was a problem then poverty has always been a problem Christ says the poor you'll have with you always and that is very much the case so if you can understand the early church for the most part being a beacon to the lost a beacon to the poor Paul spoke about these servants in Caesar's household and the people heard the Lord gladly and uh, I remember somebody once said that uh, Christianity is a poor man's religion and there's something in that whereas Scientology and the Kabbalah are more interested in appealing to the middle class appealing to those with money but here you have a picture of a rich man going into an assembly he's well dressed and it's interesting that the word gay appears in the third verse and when it was penned back in 1611 it didn't mean a homosexual it meant somebody who was happy somebody who was well clothed but uh, with the swing in 60s quote unquote came the whole rock and roll movement which of course goes back to the 50s but it really took ground during the 60s and the free love era and the Anthony O'Leary era and the Weona Ryder era and all that crowd who completely came under the spell of the free love the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Kinks and all those demon possessed bands and uh, the word gay took on a completely different connotation but here my feeling is it has a a throwback to Luke 16 the the rich man in hell with Lazarus and the rich man is really chastised not because he was rich but because the love of money is the root of all evil and for him money was his God whereas Lazarus had faith in Jehovah God and was saved and of course in those days it was a it was a scandal really to suggest to the Jews this proud aristocrat this priest system uh, which had been completely apostatized really had completely changed since the Babylonian captivity to teach this message that being rich doesn't necessarily guarantee you entrance into heaven being rich may give you status among your peers but that's not going to save you you need to deny yourself you need to pick up your cross and follow the savior and that was a shock to the Jewish people absolute shock five hearken my beloved brethren hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him that term again brethren brethren in the New Testament always refers to saved people and uh, you can't really get around that it's very difficult to apply this spiritually to unsaved Jews yes they are still beloved for the father's sake but they are also temporarily out of the will of God and Jesus says you are of your father the devil so pre-salvation whether you're a Jew or a Gentile you are unclean you are in need to be cleansed and that's what the righteousness of Christ is all about six but he have despised the poor do not rich men oppress you enjoy you before the judgment seats they totally do because they have the money and Paul said in 1st Corinthians 6 that the Corinthians to their shame were going to court and they were suing their brothers and their sisters 
and unsaved judges were presiding over these issues that the early church were having and uh, that was a complete scandal then and I believe it uh, would still be a complete scandal to this day seven do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called it's one thing for an unsaved person to blaspheme the Lord and a typical unsaved person if you put a camera on their head and left it recording for 24 hours that unsaved person would blaspheme the Lord not only with his tongue but with his actions and with the thoughts in his heart but it's even worse when a saved person blasphemes the Lord it's awful when you see a professing Christian living an immoral life in public and the world see that that's an even higher form of blasphemy 8. If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself ye do well the AV, the authorised version brilliantly gives us the ye and you and uh, all the new versions omit the ye and put you so it could be singular and it could be plural but you never know but in the AV it tells us here that it is plural and uh, this royal law the royal priesthood which we also find in Peter's epistle clearly is a higher way of elevating the Lord it's a higher way of elevating his whole majesty 9 but if you have respect to persons you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors again favoritism is a problem and if you are a saved person if you are out and about the Lord's work you need to be all things to all people as Paul was don't have any favorites it's uh, bad enough when you come across unsaved people who claim to have a favorite son or a favorite daughter and uh, it's even worse when you have a saved person who shows favoritism uh, 10 for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point he is guilty of all those of you that want to keep the law those of you that believe that the Sabbath is for today you are now minded to keep the whole law and if you don't keep the whole law then you have broken everything in other words if you just break one of God's commandments you've broken all of the commandments and that's a heavy load to to carry 11 for he that said do not commit adultery said also do not kill now if thou commit no adultery yet if thou kill thou art become a transgressor of the law just to hate somebody is the same as killing and just to lust after somebody is the same as adultery now obviously it's going to be far greater for somebody that goes out and murders somebody and far greater than somebody who goes out and commits adultery compared to somebody who just lusts after another party or hates another party but here like the whole theme of the New Testament the writers are elevating the law it's like in Matthew's Gospel when Christ says you have heard that it was said of them of old and he quotes the scripture but I say and he elevates it that if you lust after a woman you've already committed adultery with her in your heart and the whole point of that was to, a to reinforce to sharpen the 
power of the law on the unsaved because throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels, most of the people that the Lord Jesus Christ preached to rejected him. And he went back time after time preaching to the same people. And yet our Calvinist friends believe that all of those that are saved today, all of those that were saved yesterday, and all of those that will be saved tomorrow have already been predestinated, they've already been chosen, they've already been programmed before the foundation of the world to be saved. And yet the Lord went back and forth through Israel for three and a half years preaching to the goats. It makes no sense, but that's what they believe nonetheless. And B, the second point here would be that the Lord is trying to show people that they need him. That's the whole point when you go through the New Testament. The law couldn't save you. The law will condemn you. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And then when we come to Christ, we rest in him. He is our Sabbath rest. We don't meet on Saturdays like the Jews did. And Paul may have gone around the synagogues preaching to the Jews on a Saturday because he was Jewish. And therefore he was entitled to keep the feast days. He was entitled to keep the Sabbath. And yet the Jews still persecuted him. Even though he did all those things, they still persecuted him. And they tried to kill him many times in the book of Acts. So... Paul, as a Jew, had the credentials, he had the right to do what he did, but people living today, Gentiles, male or female today, are not mindful to keep the Sabbath. And uh, the same goes with the feast days. It's not something which we need to concern ourselves about. The early church met on a Sunday, normally first thing in the morning, pre-dawn normally, and they would go to the highest point in their town, on a hilltop or maybe even on a mountain and they'd wait for the sun to come up and they would have their weekly breaking of bread and uh, now the typical church the typical fellowship will meet 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning we're a bit more lazier but uh, like I say the early church met first thing pre-dawn and uh, it was very special to them 12 so speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty for he shall have judgment without mercy that hath shown no mercy a mercy rejoiceth against judgment Romans said that he would show mercy on who he would show mercy and he would have compassion on whom he would have compassion a couple of chapters later he says he would have mercy on everybody it's like John 6, the Lord says, you can't come to me unless the Father draws you to me. By the 12th chapter, he says, I will draw all men unto myself. 2 Corinthians 5 says that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. While we were yet sinners, while we were yet blasphemers, while we were yet adulterers, while we were yet fornicators, while we were this, while we were that, Christ died for us. So in our worst state imaginable, Christ died for us. When he hung on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. It is finished. 
those last three words completes the work of the Saviour. It is finished. Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. He's a saviour. He is the good shepherd. All that ever come before me are thieves and robbers. I am the door. I am the way. I am the truth. It's his way or no way. And that needs to be emphasised time after time. And those that are saved never tire of doing that. But remember one thing, that if you come to the Lord to be saved, you come his way. You don't come your way. You come his way as a broken, confessed, depraved, wicked sinner. And you reach out to him like a beggar and say, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, save me. And the moment you do that, he reaches down, grabs your hand and says, I've got you. You're saved. And you're safe. 14. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works? Can faith save him? This is the most controversial part of the New Testament I put to you. The debate has gone on for centuries between Christians and Catholics. The Christians that know the Bible, that believe the Bible, that know the Lord and are known of the Lord will fight and die on faith through Christ alone. The other camp are for the most part religious zealous tradition lovers self-righteous unsaved faith alone is what saves a sinner and I'll prove that in the next few moments but faith without works is dead so when you come to the Lord like I've shown you from Ephesians chapter 2 you are then saved by grace unto good works and your works are performed because you have been saved but faith if it doesn't produce works is dead so a person who has no works a person who has no fruit is I would say for the most part still unsaved but Matthew 13 said that some people will bring to fruition 30%, 60 or 100%. Few will get it to 100%, few. Most will get it between, say, 60 or 90. But very rare will you come across somebody who has achieved the 100% mark. Paul did it, and probably John did it, and some of the other apostles. But most people living today can't even reach anything near 60%. So, 15. If a brother 
or sister be naked and destitute of daily food and one of you say unto them depart in peace be ye warmed and filled notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body what doth it profit what explanation is needed how could I exegete that in any other way than what you've already read if a saved brother or a saved sister comes to you and is hungry and you have the ability you have the power to do something for that brother or that sister and you do nothing for them how does it profit you how does that prove your love for them you've been told to be a doer of the word not just a hearer and even if you haven't got the power yourself to do something for a saved brother or a saved sister who's not as fortunate as you are surely you know somebody who you could call upon to help that party 17 even so faith if it hath not works is dead being alone a saved person looking at another saved person is entitled to offer themselves as the fruit inspector and we were told to judge ourselves Paul said that and when we judge ourselves we aren't chastised by the Lord we were told to use righteous judgment in all areas of our lives in all areas of society and the early church in the second chapter of Revelation were commended when they judged the false apostles so judgment and fruit inspection is paramount not just to make you appear self-righteous or to give you a superior complex but to assist your brother and sister to say brother this or sister that I'm concerned you've been saved 25 years and I can't see any fruit I can't see any love from you towards this person or that person you claim to be saved but you don't give out tracts you don't go door to door you don't street preach you don't witness to your friends or your family what's going on faith alone is dead 18 yea a man may say thou hast faith and I have works show me thy faith without thy works and I will show thee my faith by my works self-explanatory really you have a head belief and you have a heart belief look at 19 thou believest that there is one God thou doest well the devils also believe and tremble so do the Muslims so do the Catholics two groups monotheist combined three billion people half the earth claim to be monotheist are they saved of course not Satan knows there's only one God the devils trembled when they came into the presence of the Lord they trembled they said have you come to torment us before the time and Revelation 14 speaks about that in more detail so a head knowledge isn't enough a mental consent 
that Christ is the Son of God, a mental consent that the Bible is the Word of God isn't enough. There has to be a transformation in your life when you become a saved person, not sinless perfection. One of the biggest mistakes that the Arminians make, and John Wesley, our wonderful preacher, a tremendous evangelist, one of Britain's finest, with his Calvinist colleague, Charles Spurgeon. But one of the biggest mistakes that John Wesley made was that he taught that it was possible for a saved man or a saved woman living in a cursed world, living in a fallen body, to be sinless, to live without sin. It sounds wonderful, but it's completely false. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar, and the truth is not in us. It is possible not to sin as much as you once sinned, and that comes to the new birth, but I believe it is impossible to be sinless post your new birth, pre-glorification, pre the rapture, pre the second coming, even during the thousand year reign when Christ is reigning on the earth. Mankind still has the sin problem. Mankind still has original sin. Only when he has been completely changed from within and given a new body does he become sinless like the angels, like the spirits. 20. But will thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Go to Genesis. Now I haven't got time to read the chapters that I want to show you. So I'm going to give you the chapters and the references and please take the time to read this at your own leisure. Genesis chapter 12, the Lord calls Abraham. Abraham is a type of anybody who's ever been saved or is going to be saved. Abraham gets called. A sinner gets called. Called to repentance. But here, not only is Abraham being called to be saved, he's also called for service. So there's a slight distinction to be drawn, a slight distinction in the fact that he's been called for salvation and service. Many are called, but few are chosen. Go to uh, Genesis 15, verse 6. That's justification. The Lord calls him in the 12th chapter. The Lord calls an unsaved person. Abraham believes. An unsaved person believes. And then he's justified. Genesis 15, 6. And he believed in the Lord. And he counted to him for righteousness. No circumcision has yet taken place. The Lord said, I'm going to give you a seed. And there'll be as many as the stars of heaven. Do you believe that, Abraham? He said, I believe it, Lord. And he said, right, you are saved. Go to chapter 17, verse 23. 
And Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all that were born in his house, and all that were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the self same day, as God has said unto him. You can spiritualize circumcision for baptism. Go to Acts 16. And uh, I've already cited the Philippian jailer, but I want to just look at a couple of verses to show you the comparison between an Old Testament picture of somebody who got saved, harmonizing quite nicely, I might add, with a New Testament person who has just got saved. Acts 16, verse 31, And they said, Paul and Silas, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. 34. And when he, that's the Philippian jailer, had brought them into his house, and set meat before them, and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. 33. And he took them the same hour of the night, and washed their stripes, and was baptized, he and all his straight way. So Abraham's circumcision found in the book of Genesis, the Philippian jailer's salvation found in Acts 16 mirrors one another, but circumcision was mandatory to be a faithful Jew, whereas baptism isn't mandatory for any purpose really, but it's something that you should do it's a good testimony. So Abraham was called. Abraham believed on the Lord. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. No works. He was saved before he even offered up Isaac. So you need to go back and read the original chapters. And get the, the context straight. Before you fall into the blunder. That some of our works righteous friends make. 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? One more scripture to show you. Scripture with scripture. It's the only way you're ever going to get these teachings clear in your own mind when it comes to faith alone or faith and works, eternal security or conditional security. The only way to really understand the word of God is to use scripture to interpret scripture. 1 Samuel 16 7 But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his statue, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. James 2, when it speaks about Abraham being justified by works, is speaking of man looking at a saved person. So Abraham is being justified by his works in the sight of man. Paul, in Romans chapter 4, is speaking of man being justified in the sight of God. God sees the heart of the sinner. And when he sees the sinner's heart believing on him, 
he saved. Nobody else would see that, of course. That's between man and God. But once a man is saved, he will produce works and he will prove his faith. He will prove his obedience to the Lord through his works. First Samuel shows us how that works. So Romans chapter 4, James chapter 2, with First Samuel sandwiched in between the two, clearly and beautifully harmonizes the fact that man is saved by faith in his creator and then his works are seen around those that may or may not be saved that's irrelevant but he's justified by his works in the sight of man James chapter 2 but his heart was circumcised in Romans chapter 4 and only God sees the heart which later seen by mankind 23 and the scripture was fulfilled which saith Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God not only are we friends of God we are co-heirs with God we are brethren of the Lord Jesus Christ two things I want to say also to this part of scripture when an unsaved person gets saved he gets the imputed righteousness of Christ that means that all of Christ's sinlessness all of his glory is given to an unsaved man or an unsaved woman so when God looks at a saved sinner he doesn't see the unsaved sinner he sees his son and that's why it says even if we deny him he cannot deny us you can deny the Lord temporarily through sin, through apostasy, through wickedness or whatever. But he cannot deny you because he knows you. The other side of this is infused righteousness, which means that the Lord gives some of his grace to the sinner. Normally that starts at baptism and it continues on through church attendance. It continues on through going to confession receiving the sacraments so on and so forth and that follows that person until they die but for a catholic he strokes she has to die in a state of grace that's why so many catholics on their deathbed are desperately trying to get the priest to give them the last rites and the problem with the catholics is that even if a priest gets to their bedside before they die and gives them the last rites they are not guaranteed entrance into heaven because the Catholic Church believed that most Catholics haven't confessed all of their sins they may have forgot to confess some of their sins and therefore they have to be purged in purgatory before they can go into heaven so a Catholic has no assurance whatsoever of everlasting life and yet the New Testament promised us in 1st John chapter 5 that we could know that we are saved present tense we can know that we are saved so the battle lines have been drawn and I don't believe that my time on the second chapter will make a huge difference to those that still hold to faith and works but uh, nonetheless I've got to take a stand on this and as I've said so many times for me 
faith through Christ alone and scripture alone are completely non-negotiable. I cannot and I will not ever move away from those two points and I will fight tooth and nail to preach that message to unsaved people and to reinforce it to save people who are perhaps backslidden maybe or fearful or out of fellowship with the Lord or are completely oblivious even perhaps to understanding this I will fight for it I will teach it I will affirm it and hopefully you will too because we were told to earnestly contend for the faith fight the good fight and seek the crown that Christ has given you 24 ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only again first Samuel told us that the Lord looks on the heart whereas man looks on the outward appearance 25 likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way she believed in the God of the Old Testament much like Jethro Moses' father-in-law much like a lot of the heathen that were not Jews they believed they knew who God was and this woman had faith in Jehovah God and that faith allowed her to assist Joshua's spies she won't be in heaven today because of her works she's in heaven today because she a had faith in God and B had the works and the backbone to put her faith into practice that's what saved her not her works alone 26 for as the body without the spirit is dead so faith without works is dead also completely agree with that how could you not agree with that if you're saved where are your works what are you doing for the Lord I had a conversation with a chap two weeks ago just leading up to Christmas and this chap is a professing Christian and he claims to have been saved for many years and I've spoken about this guy on other videos and I haven't spoken to him for two years and uh, he came up to me in town the town that he lives in and I was giving out tracts and he hasn't changed at all he's bitter, he's disgruntled he's indifferent, he's backslidden and I said to him, what are you doing for the Lord? how often are you reading your Bible? he said twice I said twice a day, twice a week I said it's not enough and I said to him, why don't you start giving out some tracts? start doing something for the Lord faith without works is dead he said to me, oh this town's going to hell I said brother, the whole world's going to hell but what are you doing about it? you were told to preach the gospel you were told to be faithful unto death an inactive Christian a backslidden Christian a disgruntled Christian is never going to be used by the Lord Satan will use him my people blaspheme my name this party, this chap claims to be saved those in his town know that he offers himself as a saved person and his lifestyle poorly reflects his faith I'm not saying he doesn't help people, he may well do 
I'm not sure what he does in his own time. All I know is that when I see him, I get no joy, I get no peace, I get no determination from him to make a difference for the world. My feeling is that he doesn't do anything to those that he doesn't know. He may do something for those that he knows, but we were told to be a light to the lost. We were told to shine. We were told to be the backbone in a lost world. We were given the Great Commission. We are ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ. Ambassadors. A British ambassador abroad. It's a powerful man. An American ambassador abroad is a powerful man. A Japanese ambassador abroad is a powerful man. A Russian, a Chinese, a French, a German ambassador abroad is a powerful person. People want to be associated with an ambassador. He has a budget. He can spend money. He can open doors. How much more is a saved person able to achieve for the Lord? Outside of the Trinity, a saved man or a saved woman is the most important person in the universe. Because God is eternal, mankind is eternal. Man reflects God. A saved man or a saved woman that knows the scriptures, that loves the Lord, that is doing something for their king is precious. Completely outstanding. Completely exemplary when it comes to an unsaved neighbor, an unsaved family or friend. The Lord still loves that party, but his anger abides on that person. He's holy, he's righteous, and he wants a saved party to reach out to the lost. 100 years from now, everybody listening to this recording made in 2012 will be dead. Everybody, guaranteed. Most people live as they die. Most people's lives will mean nothing whatsoever in eternity. Whether you're the Prime Minister, whether you're the Queen, whether you're the CEO, or whether you're a market stall holder. If you're not saved, you're lost. And if you're lost, everything you've achieved in this life is worthless. But if you're saved, whether you're a CEO or a Queen, is what matters. The new birth. Faith through Christ alone. So my final points on the second chapter of James. Faith without works is dead. Amen. Totally accept that. Totally agree with it. Abraham was justified. He was exonerated in the sight of his unsaved servants when he went to offer Isaac his son. His servants saw him going off to sacrifice. They didn't know it was going to be Isaac. But they saw it nonetheless. But Isaac saw it. Isaac saw his father. He saw the faith that his father possessed. 
and he was justified in the sight of his son, in the sight of his servants. But he was saved back in Genesis chapter 12. And the Lord called him out of a pagan land. And if you study history, that pagan land, that pagan people worshipped Allah, the moon god. Not Jehovah God, but Allah, the moon god. And he was called out of that superstitious heathen activity. And the moment God called him out of that superstitious heathen activity, he was saved. He was called, he was justified, he was circumcised. You were called, you were justified, you were baptized. Baptism doesn't save you, but it's good to be baptized. It's good to have your family, if they're saved, baptized also. So they are the comparisons between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But the overwhelming point that I need to make on the second chapter of James is that you were saved, and the first chapter told you, by the word of God. But once you are saved, you will do works. And if you're not doing works for those that you know, whether they're saved or lost, then your faith in reality is dead. And that needs to be repented of. That needs to be dealt with. Chapter 3, verse 1. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Brethren, teachers, we, save people. Semi-dispensationalism is the only way to be when it comes to exegeting the book of James. Those that are teachers are going to be judged more severely than the non-teachers because obviously they are teaching the Bible. They are discipling new Christians or even older Christians sometimes. They are coming alongside those that have been redeemed those that have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. And therefore we will be judged in a higher capacity. Therefore we will be judged to a higher level. And you would expect that. Two, for in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths, that they may obey us. And we turn about the whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great, and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire a world of iniquity, so is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beasts, and of birds, and of serpents, and of things in the sea, is tamed, and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame, it is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therefore bless we God, even the Father, 
and therefore cursed we men which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. How true that is. One moment we are worshipping the Lord, witnessing to unsaved people, praising God, and the next moment we are character assassinating people, gossiping, moaning, complaining, being malicious. Everybody, everybody, I don't care who you are, everybody has done that. Everybody. I've done it. You've done it. These things, verse 10, ought not to be so. 10. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine, figs? Second, so no fountain, both yield salt water and fresh. Who is a wise man and endured with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. Through the blood of Christ, you have the power to put a bridle in your mouth. You have the ability to silence the wickedness of your tongue. But the reality is that most people are carnal to some extent. And therefore it's easier to give God lip service when it comes to worshipping him witnessing to unsaved people and yet once you are on your own or once you're with other people whether they are saved or not you're back to yourself really to some extent and this is completely unacceptable and that's why you were told to be separate evil communication is a bad thing some leaven leavens the whole lump and if you're associating yourself with unsaved people if you're listening to the wrong kind of music, if you're watching the wrong kind of television, and some people say, well, I haven't got a television. Well, those people are very pious, and I certainly salute those people who haven't got televisions, but those same people, I find, for the most part, watch the same programs that they once watched on television on the internet. So that pious attitude, that impression that somehow they are superior that somehow they've conquered all of the flesh doesn't really work should people have a television no not really i know when my television blows when it dies i shan't replace it and i'll be better off without one anyway but the point is you've got to watch your tongue you've got to watch it because look at 14 but if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not, and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. I would say it's quite plausible for an unclean spirit to oppress a saved person. I think that's been found clearly in both testaments. And I think to some extent 15 here, when it refers to devilish, points back to the devil. He's the father of lies. His sole role now is to destroy the saved man or woman, 
So I think it's quite probable, actually, that an unclean spirit can oppress a saved person and cause that party to blaspheme, to fall, to stumble, and commit some pretty wicked and abominable acts. I don't believe a saved person can be possessed by the devil, but certainly oppressed. And that wisdom, that wisdom comes from hell. That's pretty frightening, really, because that's the bottom line when it comes to gossiping and being malicious and being nasty to other people, assassinating people with your tongue. And the Word of God wouldn't condemn it if it wasn't possible to stop doing it. We were told to be holy, for God is holy. You wouldn't be told to be holy if you couldn't be holy. And of course, pre the new birth, that has no meaning to you. But once you are born again, and if you yield to the Spirit, if you display the fruits of the Spirit, then you are more than victorious. You are more than an overcomer. You are a living saint, not somebody who's died and has a shrine set up to commemorate you, but you are a living saint. You are a living epistle. 16. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Testimony, testimony, testimony. You need to fight to keep your testimony clean. The moment you lose your testimony, you are finished. You're still saved, but you will never be the same as you were pre the loss of your testimony. Bridle the tongue, meditate on the scripture, deny the flesh, and you won't fall into the condemnation here. There is power in the blood of Christ, and when we yield to the Holy Spirit, we are more, more than conquerors, we are more than victors. But you have to yield to the Holy Ghost. You have to do it. He won't do it for you. So the burden is on you to live a life that will honor the Savior. And if you don't honor the Savior, then you are condemned here. Testimony, testimony, testimony. Chapter 4, verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. That's the number one reason why your prayers are not answered. To get a prayer answered, it has to be the will of God. You have to be walking in the Holy Spirit. You have to be keeping the commandments. And even then, even when those three points are met, even then, 
it's down to the Lord's perfect timing. But if you're fighting, if you're devouring one another, if you're in the flesh, then your prayers go amiss. And you may be asking for prosperity, you might be asking for your wife to fall pregnant, you might be praying for a wife, you might be praying for a job. But if you're walking in the flesh, if you're slaughtering man who is made in the image of God, found in the second chapter, forget it. Your prayers are going completely unheard. And that should be something to sober you up. Sober yourself up to the things of the Lord. Get yourself right with God. Repentance is great to be given to the unsaved, and it's imperative for the unsaved to repent, to have a complete change of mind. But sometimes a saved person needs to repent as well. Not to be saved. A saved person is already saved, clearly. You don't repent twice, you don't get born again again. But sometimes a saved person needs to repent. They need to go back. Go back to where they fell and start again. For ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And nearly every single seeker friendly church, ecumenical church, liberal denomination are friends with the world. You see religious people sharing platforms with unsaved politicians. Very much seen in America. Politicians will crisscross America, especially during a presidential year. And churches will have these people into their pulpits, these unsaved people for the most part, preaching the social gospel, preaching the brotherhood of man. Complete folly, completely unacceptable. Second Corinthians made it crystal clear that saved people have no fellowship with unsaved people, excluding family, excluding workmates or work colleagues. You were to have no fellowship with the world. You were called out of the world. You were given a mandate to preach to the world. So you cannot have fellowship with the world. You cannot marry an unsaved man or an unsaved woman. The moment you marry an unsaved party, the Bible says you joined your body to a harlot. You joined your body to a corpse. And that's a powerful statement, but it's true. You were born again. You were regenerated. You were made alive. And when a saved man, when a saved woman marries an unsaved man or an unsaved woman, it's one of the worst blunders a saved party can ever commit. And you are condemned for that. You're called an adulterer, a spiritual adulterer. You were married to God when you were born again. To then go and marry an unsaved man or an unsaved woman is adultery, spiritual adultery. And you become an enemy of God. If we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 5. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? 6. But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Somebody once said that if he had the opportunity to spend an hour with an unsaved person, he would spend 50 minutes preaching the law of God, the holiness of God, the righteous judgment of God, everlasting hell, and the last 10 minutes, the cross, the forgiveness, the love, the mercy. Somebody who's humble can be treated with humility, with meekness, Somebody who's proud should be hammered with the law. Not in a confrontational way, but uh, with a righteous spirit, with a loving and sensitive approach, but with the full power of the law. 50 minutes on the law, 10 minutes at the cross. And if it's done properly, if it's done with maturity, a seed is planted completely and one day that will come to pass it'll come to blossom and eventually a person will be saved but uh, we are simply messengers of the gospel we are like the postman we post the letters but it's down to the recipients to open the letters seven submit yourselves therefore to God resist the devil and he will flee from you. Twofold application there. To submit yourself to God. Would be a picture of an unsaved person calling on the Lord. And once he calls on the Lord. He then has to resist the devil. Because he's been saved. He's been transferred from the kingdom of darkness. To the kingdom of light. And the second part of this part of scripture would be for a saved person. Who perhaps is backslidden. And he was spoken of in verse 4. He now needs to submit himself to God. He needs to confess his sins. And resist the devil. And those two aspects of seven. Submitting and resisting are continual progress. It's a continual action that God expects from you. Eight. Draw nigh to God. And he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands ye sinners. And purify your hearts ye double minded. You've got to come. You've got to come on his terms. Deny yourself. Get rid of the idols. Whatever it is that you worship. Whatever it is you spend more time with. Whether it's family or friends. Whether it's music or pets. Whether it's food or items around you. Whatever it is that is between you and the Lord. Is an idol. And you have to put your idols away. And you've got to turn to the Lord, and he will turn to you. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Come crying. Weep over your sin. Weep over the lives that you've affected. Weep over the people that you've hurt pre your salvation days. Or even your post-salvation days. If you're backslidden, weep. Cry over your sin and then rejoice. Rejoice in the fact that God has received you and he saved you. 
Ten, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Eleven, speak not evil one of another brethren. But he that speaketh evil of his brother, and judgeth his brother, speaketh evil of the law, and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? Go to now, ye that say today or tomorrow, we will go into such a city, and continue there a year, and buy and sell and get gain, whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapour that appeareth for a little time, and then vanisheth away. How true! Ten and ten people will die. One hundred and fifty thousand die every day. Seven thousand an hour. The overwhelming majority of those people didn't see it coming. Life is so short, but hell or heaven is eternal. People say, I'm going to do this tomorrow, I'm going to do that tomorrow, I'm going to plan this, I'm going to plan that. There is nothing wrong with having ambition. There's nothing wrong with making plans. You have to function, you have to go out, you have to live, you have to exist. But here you're finding people who are selfish, people who are carnal, people who are trying to plan great things for themselves and are not doing it through the will of the Holy Spirit. They're doing it in spite of the Holy Spirit. They're doing it off their own backs. And you've got to be so careful because your life is a vapor. It's here one moment and it's gone the next. And that's why it's imperative to get the gospel out to people. And that's why it's imperative that if you are saved, you spend your time wisely and uh, you try not to become somebody who sits around kicking their heels waiting for something to come along or waiting for somebody to phone or waiting for a new thrill or a new kick you're not looking to get a time filler you're not trying to kill time you are living for a purpose and you are existing for a purpose and all that you do is done for God's glory now again I appreciate that these are not easy things to attain and nearly all of us and I include myself fall short we could all do more and we should all do more and we should all want to try and reach a higher level and uh, I do think I do believe that when we are disciplined when we take the time to do this we can achieve it if you look at any athlete, any unsaved athlete, you realize that they've spent all of their life practicing to reach the ultimate goal, which is to perform at the Olympics. If you look at any great musician, they've practiced since they were two, three, four to perform at the Royal Abbott Hall or Carnegie Hall or the Sydney Opera House. They made the effort. Now their crown is corruptible. That's true. And it will perish with them. But the point is they made the effort. They pushed themselves. 
and if an unsaved person can reach highs what can a saved person do? a saved person can blow an unsaved athlete, an unsaved musician, an unsaved politician, an unsaved king, an unsaved queen out of the water but you've got to be disciplined you have to beat your body to submission so again scripture says to do it and it wouldn't tell you to do it if you couldn't do it but you've got to discipline yourself to achieve it can it be done? yes will it be easy? no but are you going to try? that's the question 15 for that he ought to say if the Lord will we shall live and do this or that Amen 16 but now you rejoice in your boastings all such rejoicing is evil pride was the destruction of the devil and Paul said don't ordain a new believer lest he fall through pride and pride is the biggest obstacle for a saved man or woman that pride never really leaves you I've been saved 10 years now and my pride is probably 70% eliminated to what it was pre my salvation but that 30% is still far too high and Lord willing one day I will be 80% or 90% exonerated from this pride problem but uh, I do remember a conversation I had with a, an American missionary in Romania some years ago and he was in his 60s and he died quite young really and I said to this older brother could you have gone to Romania when you were a younger man and done the work that you are doing now when you were in your 20s or your 30s and he said no I was too proud what a great honest statement to make for me I appreciated that enormously he didn't say oh yes I've always been a humble person no he was honest enough to say it was a problem and 10, 20, 30 years passed 40 years passed and he got his pride problem down from 70 to 80 to 90 200% almost maybe and he went to Romania with his wife and they both were buried in Romania they both died young but they had eliminated the pride problem it can be done 17 therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him it is sin your conscience to the pure all things are pure if you know something is wrong and you do it, that's sin. You have the liberty in Christ to do A, B, or C, but if A, B, or C causes a stumbling block to brother A or sister B, then it's best you don't do it. But my final thought, really, on chapter 4 is to take each day as it comes, start the day in prayer seek the Lord's blessing for the day ahead pray throughout the day you are told to pray without ceasing pray as and when you can 
and when you go to sleep at night close your day with a prayer and reflect on the good that you have enjoyed throughout the day and you will be surprised at how many blessings you have and if you feel sorry for yourself go online and google churches in North Korea Google churches in Africa Google churches in China not the state churches, the underground churches Google churches in India look at what's happening to Christian leaders in Iran check out the size of these people's houses with no electricity with no water mother and father with six, seven, eight children living in one room with their animals go back and count your blessings again if you live in a first world country you are mightily blessed you could be the only saved person living in your town but how many of you would want to swap that for the brother or the sister living in Peru or Delhi or Swaziland or Nepal not many so rejoice rejoice that you're living in a good country rejoice that you're living in a country which allows you to worship the Lord publicly and allows you to preach the gospel in the streets so many too many saved men and women around the world don't have that same privilege that we have chapter 5 verse 1 go to now ye rich men weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten your gold and silver is cankered and the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire ye have heaped treasure together for the last days behold the hire of the labourers who reap down your fields which is of you kept back by fraud crieth and the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. A labourer is worthy of his hire. If somebody is commissioned to do a job, he stroke she should receive a fair wage. And the Lord has always been on the side of the downcast, on the side of the widow, the fatherless. And the Lord Jesus Christ spent more time with the common people than he did with the rulers, the kings, the so-called well-to-do people. The scripture says that the Lord came to serve rather than to be served. He was humble with a capital H and uh, we were told to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. No doubt that verses 1 down to 4 have been cited by communists and socialists and all atheistic left-wing politicians to argue that the Lord Jesus was a good socialist that somehow the scripture is in favor of the working man compared to the evil tyrant employer which is not the case whatsoever Paul said to be faithful not to give eye service to your employer you were told to submit to your employer and you were told to submit to the state like a child submits to its parents like an employee submits to its employer like the prime minister submits to the crown and the crown we are told submits to the Lord but here 
I guess the main point that James is driving home is that the rich person that trusts in their riches, that worships their money, that falls into the condemnation that the man in Luke 16 found himself in, is going to one day be ruined. He may have the best clothes, he may have the best cars, he may have the best houses, he may be looked upon as some great success story. Even Herod fell into the same trap and the book of Acts tells us that they treated him as a god and because of that he was struck down by the Lord. Mankind can only go so long before his time is up and the more that he worships himself, the more that he puts himself above the Lord, his days will be limited as a result of that. 5. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. War is God's judgment on sin here, and hell is God's judgment on sin hereafter. Throughout the Old Testament, the Lord will raise up ungodly leaders, ungodly soldiers, ungodly armies, and they will slay other ungodly armies, other ungodly soldiers, other ungodly kings. Jesus raised up Hitler to be a thorn in the flesh of the West. The West eventually came against Hitler and destroyed the Third Reich. The Lord raised up Stalin as a thorn in the side of the West and the West spent the next 50 years in this cold war east versus west west versus east as i say war is god's judgment on sin here and hell is god's judgment on sin hereafter a term that i didn't coin a term that's been coined by somebody else many years ago but it's true when you hear of a catastrophe when you hear of a typhoon or a hurricane or an earthquake you have to remember that everything happens in this universe for a purpose nothing happens by mistake nothing catches the Lord unaware and while we cannot and we will not say that the Lord is the author of sin which the Calvinists do if they are faithful Calvinists what we can say and will say is that the Lord allows sin to occur and he allows man to wallow in his sin the moment a man turns from the Lord the moment a man turns from the conscience that he has the moment the Lord ignores a man and that's when a man is in a real bad way when the Lord ignores him but the moment these things occur then a person is under the judgment of God he's no longer restrained by the Holy Spirit He's no longer restrained by society. Those living in Nazi Germany lived under the leadership of the Third Reich. And Hitler was able to change the laws. He was able to hypnotize the German people. And they went along with his plan. Probably 95% of the German people went along with his demon-possessed agenda. The 5% that stood against him were made up primarily of a few 
Protestants, a few communists, and a few humanists, for the most part, society went along with Hitler. And that's a tragedy when the Lord takes his hand, when the Lord stops restraining an unsaved man or an unsaved woman, then they are going to be following anybody or anything. In Russia, it was Stalin. In Germany, it was Hitler. And in the West today, it is capitalism. It's humanism. It's postmodernism. It's whatever feels good must be right, must be good. And that's complete folly. But here, 5 and 6 makes it quite clear that these people are condemned because they killed the just. And the Lord won't restrain them because it is his judgment on a wicked people. 7. Be patient therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and the latter rain. That's probably a reference to the second coming, although you could easily look at that and say it has a reference to the rapture. Why? Well, we are looking for the Lord to return for us at a moment's notice. When Jesus came the first time, the shepherds saw him first of all, and then later on the wise men, the magis, came to see him, and the entire town, the entire city, the entire nation was aware of it. The first coming is found in Luke chapter 1, and that has the shepherds only having a glimpse of the birth of the king, which is cross-referenced to Acts chapter 1 and First Thessalonians chapter 4. At the rapture, only the saved will be witnessing the Lord in the air. At the second coming, the entire world get to see that. And uh, that is cross-referenced to Matthew chapter 2, when the wise men came to Jerusalem with an army of about 5,000 soldiers, an armed guard, and that's cross-reference to Matthew 24 and Revelation chapter 1 when it says all the tribes of the earth will mourn for him. Every eye will see him. Second coming, first coming. The first birth has two stages, as I say. Luke 1 has the shepherds, pitch of the rapture. Matthew 2 has the wise men coming. And uh, that's cross-reference with Matthew 24, Revelation chapter 1. 8. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. This grudge will be cross-referenced with verse 16, when it comes to confessing your faults to another, not your sins to a priest, but your faults. And a fault is not the same as a sin, and a sin is not the same as a fault. The condemnation found in verse 9 is a picture of the judgment, not as an unsaved sinner at the great white throne, but a saved person at the judgment seat of Christ. We were told in 1 Corinthians 11 that if we judge ourselves, we are not judged by the Lord. We were told in 1 John that when we confess our sins, we are cleansed from our sins and we continue on in our fellowship with the Lord. 10. Take my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord. And the Lord is very pitiful, and of tender mercy. 
But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea, and your nay nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. The Freemasons would do very well to read this part of Holy Writ. Don't promise what you can't commit to. Don't take an oath. Don't promise something. Don't go into a court of law and put your hand on the Bible and swear by Almighty God to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Don't make promises which you cannot keep. Don't bring the Lord into it. When you hear a person say, I swear by God or I swear to God, and they bring the Lord into their situation, they bring the Lord into an argument, they bring the Lord into their own business. That's a dangerous thing. That's blasphemy. If you're going to say something, you better do it. And if you're not going to do it, don't say that you will do it. Be consistent in what you do. 13. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. This verse will link up nicely with the latter verses. And the whole theme of the last part of James is affliction, suffering. The early church were afflicted. They were treated like vagabonds. They were told to go out and preach the gospel. They were forced out of Rome. Much like we find in the 11th chapter of Genesis when the Lord said to the people, go out, don't stay in Mesopotamia, go out, repopulate the earth, take your dialect, take your ways with you, the earth is a big place, don't just stay in one location, but for the early church it was paramount, persecution was raised, persecution was experienced, persecution was an everyday occurrence, and the devil may have been behind that persecution, but the Lord is behind the devil, and that persecution forced the Jews out of their communities. And once they went out of their communities, they would preach the gospel. So the Lord is always behind everything, even if it's disastrous, even if it's bleak, even if it's depressing, even if it seems pointless, he is behind everything. And that's why we were told to never lose hope, never lose faith, to keep on enjoying and be faithful unto death. 14. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. The Catholics believe in the last rites. They believe that the priest has to be called for before the Catholic dies. The Catholic has to give a full confession and the priest has to grant the dying penitent catholic absolution forgiveness of sins but here you were told to call for the elders not the priest not the pastor not the vicar every epistle in the new testament is written to the church via the elders the one-man ministry isn't really found until the late second stroke early third century and uh, these elders will pray over you to be healed. This could be physical healing, this could be spiritual healing. This could be in reference to those that were suffering from a physical ailment or could have reference to a spiritual ailment. The early church suffered immensely. But uh, what we do know for sure is that the elders would come 
would pray over the sick party and the sick party would be healed and later restored so you can't really go to the fifth chapter of James and have this in mind when it comes to a Catholic receiving the last rites because here the person who is prayed over is healed they don't die so it's not necessarily a confession in order to then be saved but it's a healing in order to be reinstated to be restored back to good health 16 confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much confess your faults to one another how many Catholic churches do you know where the priest will confess his faults to the congregation? He expects Catholics to go into the confession box, pre the receipt of communion, and tell the priest all of their inner thoughts, all of their sins, all of their deeds. He expects that, and a faithful Catholic is minded to do that. But how many times do you find a priest confessing his faults to his congregation? Never. He knows all their business, but they know nothing about him. Here you are told to confess your faults one to another. A saved brother will confess his faults to a saved sister, and vice versa. Normally it's done in the context of if somebody has offended the other party. If you offend a brother, tell your brother you're sorry for it. If you offend a sister, tell the sister you are sorry for it. A fault and a sin, as I say, are different things. In 1 John, we were told to confess our sins to God. But here, James says to confess your faults one to another. It's done for forgiveness. It's done to stop resentment, bitterness, and any other unfortunate feeling or resentment creeping into the church. Because once that creeps into the church, once it creeps into any relationship, it's deadly. And it can bring a relationship to a sudden and abrupt end. 17. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three and a half years. Elijah, I believe, will be one of the two witnesses found in the book of Revelation, and uh, here he is cited as being a literal person in the Old Testament. And I want to say this because sometimes people make the argument that some of the greats from the Old Testament didn't even exist and it's strange that they would say that and in the next breath offer themselves as Bible believers Jesus spoke about Moses and he spoke about Noah here James the brother of the Lord is speaking of Elijah now why would you quote somebody if they didn't exist it makes no sense but here he prayed that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years which is a picture of judgment and the Lord granted that prayer the great tribulation will run for seven years the beginning of sorrows is three and a half years and the tribulation itself is three and a half years so we combine these two events to make it seven years and the two witnesses come pre the tribulation they preach they're destroyed and the Lord resurrects them and the entire world see that and that again proves that we are living in the last days just a hundred years ago we had no satellites in the sky we had no mobile phones we had no Twitter we had no Facebook we had no YouTube we had no broadband we had no computers we had no internet nothing 
if you were to write a letter from the UK to the US or from the UK to Australia or the UK to New Zealand it would take weeks to get there but now we can have a live video conference a live audio conversation we can produce a high definition video and upload it to the internet within minutes we can watch live news and that is a sign that we are living in the last days 18 and he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth brought forth her fruit brethren if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him let him know that he which converted the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins conversion here is turning a saved person around Jesus said to Peter that when he was converted he would strengthen the brethren Peter was saved but he erred. he denied Christ three times and three times Jesus had to straighten him out here you find a picture of a saved person converting another saved person who's backslidden who's fallen to sin and by doing that his sins are covered through the forgiveness of the Savior by confessing his sins from first John and also from having the elders praying over him restoring him back into full fellowship with the Lord and also verse 20 can be cited as reference to a saved person witnessing to a lost person and getting that person saved so that's the way you approach these scriptures sometimes it has a direct application to a saved person other times it has an indirect application to an unsaved person I'll just give you a quick example of how this works in Revelation 3:20, Jesus says behold I stand at the door and knock if any man hear my voice and open the door I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me that can be aimed at an unsaved party and if the unsaved party receive it they are saved and it can also be aimed at a backslidden Christian at an apostate church if they repent if they move from the error of their way then he will come in and sup with them he will retain fellowship he will recommence fellowship he will enjoy fellowshipping with you and you will enjoy fellowshipping with him okay well this will conclude my look at the epistle of James and James in Hebrew means Jacob and as I share the same name as the writer of this epistle it seemed appropriate that I would have a crack at going through this wonderful epistle and hopefully it's been a blessing to you and hopefully you've been following along with me and it looks like this will run to about two and a half hours so hopefully you will start and end with me and uh, do it in stages probably I would imagine but uh, hopefully you have your Bible open and you've been following along with me and uh, above all I hope it's been a blessing to you and uh, you will be able to share it with others perhaps